Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, an Associate Professor of Politics at York University. This is Academic Antis. This week signals the start of the school year for a lot of us. And normally, this is a time of excitement. Even as a professor, I always found the return to school fun because it signals new beginnings. But for many of us, this return to school feels different. It feels frightening and confusing. After two years of the pandemic, it's almost as if many institutions have decided that all of the COVID-related measures that they put in place, including masking and vaccination requirements, are unnecessary. On top of that, COVID-related research extensions no longer apply, putting added pressure to go back in the field and publish, publish, publish. It's almost like many institutions want to make up for the lost time over the last two years, forcing us back into what was normal before the pandemic. Whatever happened to calls to be more humane and caring? You'll be hearing from two lovely aunties, Dr. Christine Alexander, or Auntie Christine, and Dr. Jennifer Mustafa, or Auntie Jen. So let's get started. As I have been every year since I started kindergarten in 1984, I'm excited about back to school outfits (laughs) and new school supplies and meeting new people. That's Dr. Christine Alexander. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Lethbridge. And I asked her what back to school meant for her this year. While she was feeling excited, she also admitted feeling a little bit of trepidation. Despite what the Alberta provincial government and Ontario and many others and some university administrations are saying, the pandemic is far from over. So yeah, my partner and I, we caught COVID for the first time this past summer, and I'm certainly in no rush to get it again. I have to say, I don't feel entirely safe (laughs) because the mask and vaccine mandates will be gone by the time I return. They were in effect for less than a year at the UofL. And, you know, Jason Kenney has recently been on Twitter saying, you don't like those other universities telling you to wear masks? Come to Alberta. There's no masks here. So, oh, yes. But at the same time, luckily, I know the classrooms that I'm going to be teaching in, and they're pretty big. Windows don't open, but I hear from my colleagues who work in this area that they have done things to assess and improve ventilation on campus. But I did a social media post about this a while ago that I bought a a portable air purifier with the idea that I would bring this with me to class and I would have it in my office. And I tried to claim it to a professional expense account, which I've used for buying binders and maybe I think a picture frame for something in my office, but it got rejected and I've never had a claim rejected so quickly. Oh, I've had claims rejected. Don't, don't, yeah, don't get me wrong. But (laughs) this one, and it basically just, I think it said, delete this claim immediately. This is a health and safety issue. If you have (laughs) concerns about the air quality on this campus, contact somebody else. And I just thought, oh, that's how we're going to go. Because the terms of reference for this particular little pot of money is basically anything that will help a faculty member to do their job better and that will help them to serve students better. Yeah. And so to my mind, something that might make me and probably some of my students at least feel safer might prevent us from getting sick. That will in this changed world that we live in. I think that that will help. 
my students and I do our jobs better. I also spoke with Dr. Jen Mustafa. She's an assistant professor of political science at Huron College at Western University. She also talked about feeling conflicted. I'm actually excited to get back to work in person, but I also have some trepidation about how it's all going to work and how it's all going to feel. And I feel very much like a lot of people are really excited to get back to normal. And I would like to feel that way too. I just don't know that we're where we should be Mm. yet in order to feel comfortable getting back to normal. So I worry a little bit about that disconnect. It feels like a bit of a whirlwind. We only just got word over the last couple of weeks of what the pandemic policies were going to be at the Western group of campuses. I was happy that they're maintaining classroom masking. I think that's really important. It's an accessibility issue. And that was something that was weighing on me heavily because I have care commitments. I'm a sandwich generation kid, and that's become even more intensified just over the last year because I brought my parents back to oh. Canada from where they had been living for the last 39 years, which is oh. Malaysia. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. And my dad, unfortunately, he has Parkinson's. And okay. so, you know, he's fairly high risk. And my mom is also a bit high risk because she has asthma. So mm-hmm. I was stressing a little bit about being able to be front facing with a group of unmasked students several times a week and then still feeling like I could be comfortable around my mom and dad. And then of course, I'm a parent like you and I have a daughter and she's going into grade eight. And when we started um, the the panini, as I like to call it, she was finishing up grade five. So this is what you tweeted, August 23, 13.5K likes, oh my God, went viral. I'm just going to read it out loud for our listeners because I think it was super powerful. For me, one of the biggest losses incurred in this pandemic is my once deeply held belief that most people, given the right info and resources, will work together to achieve common goals and want the best for one another. That most people understand that rights come with responsibilities. So you tweeted that, Auntie Chen. Why do you think it resonated with so many people? I mean, I was having a bad day. <laughs> Um, and it was actually a couple of things that were just annoying me that day. This was right after Western did announce its policies. And then predictably, there was just all the like bullshit backlash, so-called backlash. And I say so-called because I find that stuff is so amplified all the time, more than it needs to be, and really sets a disproportionate importance to it. Don't get me started on that. But anyway, I I was annoyed by that. I was annoyed by anybody having a problem with what is really just the bare minimum at this point in a congregate work setting. And then I think this was also around the time when there was discussion of the student loan forgiveness in the United States. Oh, yes. And I was just so grossed out by the sort of like obsessive need to talk about fairness in the context of forgiving people's student loans and just it just made me angry Mm. and I just felt dispirited and I think there was some I don't even remember some other thing that sort of went on and I was just like you know like I like people my husband always said that about me he's like you really like people and I'm like no but I dislike a lot of people and he's like (laughs) you like people (laughs) 
<laughs> he's like, you like people, like you, you have like an optimism about people. And I'm like, well, that's probably true. But I have to say, I just, I don't know anymore how much I like people. I'm sad about it. And I think that's what resonated. I think a lot of people who had that optimism at the bottom of it all are just feeling it get chipped away. Yeah. Absolutely. I think in relation to the loan forgiveness thing, it was appalling to me to see the number of tweets people had about, well, I didn't have to pay that, right? And it's like, actually, when you were in university, college was like, tuition was much cheaper. And in relation to the COVID mask mandate that Western implemented, I was actually super disillusioned too, because I saw that Western was going viral. And just the number of kind of, you know, oh, this is anti-freedom and oh, Western is blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, why is wearing a mask such a big deal, right? Like we've been doing that for the, well, I've been doing that for the last few years. Cynically, it's almost like they're saying that health isn't more important than like the revenue that students bring. Yeah. And then there was the, the vaccine thing as well, which is that Western is keeping its vaccine requirement for presence on campus and then adding the third dose as a requirement. At the end of the day, I do think that um, it is pretty, it's bare minimum, right? I mean, it's a congregate setting. I think that's what people don't seem to understand. I think a lot of the universities that aren't doing anything, they have a rationale, which is somewhat reasonable, which is, you know, the health authorities and the government don't think that vaccines are necessary anymore for public settings. And they don't think that masks are necessary anymore for public settings, ipso facto, what good will it do to instate those things on campuses? But, you know, there is use, which is that it has a dampening effect. I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about everything that went wrong with communication and policy around things like what are vaccines supposed to do? What is masking supposed to do? But I think one of the biggest failures in the messaging, and this is sort of reflected in my tweet, is that you know, there are things that can only be done if everybody does them yep. or if everybody participates. So the response of, well, if you're worried about your dad who has Parkinson's, then just wear a mask. But it's like, well, no, I can only protect my dad who has Parkinson's if everybody in the classroom is wearing a mask mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that's, you know, like that's where you get that exponential group effect of a lot of these social health policies. I think everything that you're saying makes me think you're also assuming the autonomous faculty member devoid of caring responsibilities, right? And we started our conversation with you saying, I'm in the sandwich generation, man. Like, I need to make sure that I protect, you know, my parents, including your dad who has Parkinson's and also your child, right? So it's these policies isn't just for individual faculty members, individual students. It's also about recognizing the communities they're in and the caring responsibilities they might have. Mm -hmm. And on that note, you know, Western had one of the first documented community outbreaks associated with Western students, right? Oh. So there's a precedent there for the impact that a university population can have on the rest of the London community. Okay. If I recall... Last year, when there was a lot of discussion about the vaccine mandates and things like that, one of the talking points was, well, you can't, in a city like London that swells by thousands and thousands and thousands of students, come to London every year and 
they have an impact on the community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What advice will you give faculty members, students who feel anxious about the return? How do you think they should navigate the year ahead? Well, the first thing I would say is I don't want to discount anxiety. I've also been a little bit annoyed by the casting of these concerns into the basket of anxiety. Mm, mm-hmm, <laughs> because mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I think there are people who are legitimately experiencing anxiety about all of this, but I I know I get my backup when people say, oh, I know you're anxious about going back. Oh, I'm yeah. like, I'm not anxious. I'm concerned. Yeah. I'm worried. I I feel like I want to behave responsibly. Every time I see, we know that some faculty and, and members of our community are anxious. And I'm like, it's not anxiety, man, to be worried about legitimate things. No, I know. I, I hear you 100%. It's like, don't make it seem as though I'm just being paranoid here, right? It is a legit yeah. concern. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is actually my first piece of advice, because I feel like a lot of people who are more concerned than the baseline of everybody else's seeming kind of position on this. I want to say you're not being ridiculous. I want to validate that. I want to say that, you know, there's always been somebody who sort of like lurks at the entrance of the cave and looks out for the saber-toothed tigers while everyone else is in the back having a party and painting. And I just feel like, you know, society selects for that there are going to be some people who are like, oh, I don't know, man, like, like maybe we should be doing things differently. And then you hang back a little bit and you watch and you have concerns. Don't feel bad for maybe being the only person who wants to wear a mask at a meeting yes, or an event. It's very hard, I understand, for a lot of people to advocate for themselves in an academic professional setting because so many of us are in either precarious positions, pre-tenure positions, or there's just interpersonal stuff that you have to navigate with colleagues But I think it's important to advocate for yourself or your students or your colleagues where you can. So I know there's this sort of throwaway belief that students are young, they're healthy. This is really about professors. But, you know, I've had students directly tell me that they have a mom at home with cancer, for example, or they are themselves on medication that suppresses their immune system. And we can't assume that we don't have students like that in our classrooms. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as individuals, I don't think we have a lot of ability or power to singularly change policy, but in those small moments where you can, if you have a colleague who's always masking up in a small room with you, then maybe offer to wear a mask as well. Yep. Or check in with your students. How are they doing? Yep. Maybe say out loud in class, like, oh, I know a lot of you are feeling like you're sick of masking, but you know, there's a lot of really good reasons to just keep doing it for now. And it's just an extra measure to help us stay here in the classroom. I just also did want to add the sort of caveat. I think it's also important to recognize that in any of these types of situations, we do have to balance those kind of interpersonal relationships with with our colleagues and with our students. One of the things that I became aware of halfway through the pandemic so far is that just by making the choices that I make, I have made people uncomfortable Mm. or I have made people feel judged. And that's just by making the choices I make. So if I get invited to say something and I say, no, thank you, I'm not really comfortable with that actually yet, but thanks for the invitation. You know, there have been times when that has been received as 
like a rejection of what they're doing. Hmm. And I can't control that. I can't always control how other people respond to me. But I think having an awareness of things like that, you know, is useful. And I mean, one of the whole points of academic aunties, right, is as like people of color in the workplace, we're already navigating questions of being the difficult one or the Mm -hmm. killjoy feminist, you know, those are always in play. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are times when you have to pick your battles. You have to, in order to have longevity in your career and to maintain working relationships in your career. So I guess another piece of advice that I would give that I myself have had to take myself Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that sometimes it's impossible to always do things exactly like how you would want to do them. And sometimes that's okay. So I can relate to both what Auntie Christine and Auntie Jen are talking about. As much as we want it to be, the pandemic isn't over. Like Auntie Jen, I have kids and I have senior parents. And when the pandemic hit, I was just starting to put my tenure file together, which if you've never done it before, is pretty intense. For Auntie Jen, she had just begun a tenure track position when the pandemic started, and it was sobering when she told me about all the things she had to do. I just wrote my COVID impact statement last week, and seeing it all laid out that way was kind of sobering. What did you write? Like, what were some of the things that made you think, oh my goodness, do all of this? I don't want to bore your listeners with my (laughs) tenure application, but I actually did sort of point form and I elaborated on it. So I'll just read you the points, right? So the first point is that teaching in both the 2021 and 2021-22 academic years was exhausting and it took up a disproportionate amount of time, right? Like there's no way we were only using 40% of our time on teaching. No. The second point was a little more research related, which is that my ability to articulate and map out and even plan funding for future research plans were really disrupted. You know, my geographic area of research is Southeast Asia. Yeah. And there were plans to be going in person and things that I was supposed to be exploring. And that really obviously got delayed and it just wasn't in the picture. So it made it very difficult to articulate some of the things that I was interested in doing. And that was one of the things that I was like, oh yeah, I'm finally on tenure track. I can actually do these things properly. And then I wasn't able to. The third point was that service commitments and stressors during this period were especially intense. And our social isolation from each other made organizing a lot more difficult. Yeah. So I also happened to have been on the Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee over this period. We did Huron's first ever institution-wide report on racism. So that was like, yeah, the chair of that committee, when she met with the administration, she was like, just give everybody who was on this committee tenure. Just give it to them right now. (laughs) Because it was so exhausting. The fourth uh, point was that COVID uh, has meant more care commitments, but also with fewer supports. So as a parent, you know this, right? You know, we're, su- we're supporting learners at home at the same time that we're teaching from home and working from home. And as I mentioned, I'm a sandwich generation, meaning I have care commitments towards parents and my children. And I have a father with, with some health issues. And then on top of that, we don't have the usual supports or hadn't had the usual yeah. supports like you know, babysitters, daycare, you know, cleaning help or things like social time with friends. Yeah. Yeah. And then on a more sobering note, the final point that I made is that 
COVID has affected me personally, and I'm personally navigating some grief and some loss. Mm. I lost a very close loved one mm. to COVID. She was in Malaysia, uh, mm. my cousin, my, my closest cousin, like a sister cousin. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have to go into too many details, but you know, the circumstances of her passing really reinforced the importance of COVID vaccines and community safety measures in congregate settings. Yeah, it's just been weird. It's been weird for everybody. And then I should say, too, that in the COVID impact statement, I still felt the need to explain that I'm nevertheless so aware of how extremely privileged I've been throughout the pandemic, right? In terms of my living situation, our access to healthcare, the socioeconomic status of my family, the ability to work from home for so much of it. And I think a lot of us have feelings of, I don't know. Uh, guilt sometimes for even feeling bad. I think everything that you've just laid out there in your impact statement resonates, I'm sure, with a lot of listeners. It resonates with me. And I think seeing it all laid out hits you in the face in terms of everything that you've had to go through. But like, it's also almost a sanitized version in point form, right? Because it's like, it, yeah. it's packaged really well, but you're like, actually, the reality is much, much messier. And it's probably it's messy. more stressful, right? The other, and this isn't a humble brag, it relates to everything I just said about privilege. I managed to nevertheless be fairly productive, quote unquote, over the pandemic. A lot of the work that I do is possible to do from home, remotely. And so I was still able to do my job, frankly, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to express Yes, I was able to do it, but this was all the stuff that was going on underneath the surface, you know, like the swan swimming peacefully. And then there's like furious paddling underneath the water. I think it's important for um, all of us in these types of careers to just have an awareness and understanding of even if you look at someone and think they're successful or they're doing well or they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing, there could be a lot of struggling going on as well. I suspect that for many, Auntie Shen's experience is not that uncommon. On top of that, we all had to develop whole new ways of teaching in hybrid settings on the fly, usually without institutional support. During the pandemic, our work quadrupled. Some of us had to take on more labor to provide support for students and for colleagues who were distressed and needed accommodations and allowances that the institution doesn't like to give. Yet others have had to stick their necks out and speak out against inequitable policies, even when doing so comes at a risk. Time and time again, over these past few years, women and racialized scholars had to bear the burden of keeping the institution running. And I worry now that this labor of doing so much more than our contracts is just expected. This is now just part of our jobs. I asked Auntie Christine about that. I ask her, is this now our new reality? Oh, Auntie Ethel, I think that's a really important question. And I think that on the one hand, absolutely. I fully expect to be in meetings in the next several months where faculty are told, essentially, that this is the case. But I think on the flip side of that, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot and has been in the news a lot lately, this notion of quiet quitting that seems to be taking over the world where people are basically just, you know, just fulfilling the terms of their contracts 
but nothing more, I would say that I have seen in what to me felt like really gratifying ways, I have seen a number of my colleagues who were really pushed to the brink in mental and physical terms by continuing to work in these really straightened crisis conditions over the past few years, that I would say that I've seen, yeah, I've seen a number of my colleagues stop and step back and think, you know, that this, yeah, that I can't do everything and I won't do everything and basically sacrifice my well-being to make sure that the institution keeps running. I think that there are kind of two sides to that coin. You know, I don't love the idea of quiet quitting because it's just doing your job. It's not quitting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think it also Mm -hmm. shows Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. normalized this expectation that everybody should be going above and beyond all the time to help their employer, just how normalized that is, where doing kind of the baseline things that you were hired to do is somehow equated with quitting. It's interesting that this discourse of quiet quitting has started to Mm -hmm. emerge over the last few weeks with a lot Mm -hmm. of kind of companies being like, oh, watch out for your employers because they're being lazy. But on the the flip side to that, as you yourself mentioned, it's actually workers seizing power back and being like, Mm -hmm. we're doing our jobs. You have always expected us to go beyond our contracts right now. The COVID experience has led us to realize that it ain't worth it. So we're not going Mm -hmm. to do Mm -hmm. more than what is required, right? Absolutely. And I know, well, this is something that I had hoped that we were going to talk about at some point and that you and I have discussed while having beer on the front porch a lot over the past few years (laughs) is this idea of divesting or of divestment as a strategy that could be useful, I think, especially to, you know, early career faculty, but the question of tenure is tricky, but I think to everyone, basically, but especially maybe equity deserving folks, you know, universities changed my life. And getting a job as a professor was a dream that I had. And I'm really fortunate that that dream came true. But on the other hand, I think in the pursuit of that dream, I really, I made a lot of investments in terms of time and relationships and institutional commitments that turned out not to be maybe the best investments in terms of what kinds of returns I was getting back, or maybe I was getting negative interest on some of those investments. But I think that I really also found some some kind of useful parallels between this thinking about, you know, maybe I can divest some parts of my job just thinking about also mm-hmm. that maybe the ripple effects of this, whether it be, you know, agreeing to do additional uncompensated work that therefore would set a precedent that is not so good for junior colleagues. So I think that that's that. Well, it was my word of the year last year, and I think it's still my word of the year <laughs> in 2022. You know what? I think that you predicted quiet quitting in your use of the term divestment. I think you were clairvoyant. You knew where people were going. And I actually, listeners, Christina and I were talking about divestment because I was in a toxic work environment and I was like, I'm putting in all of this energy, all of this work into Mm -hmm. service committees that don't seem Mm -hmm. to be receptive to what I was bringing in. And I knew that there were huge equity implications to the work that wasn't being done. And I was giving my heart and soul into it, but I kept getting pushed back. And so Christine and I were talking about this and she said, divest, which is basically 
such an important concept for me to remember moving forward in that it allowed me to preserve mental and emotional energy. And so whether it's divestment or quiet quitting, I think drawing that line, drawing that boundary and knowing what actually our priorities are was so important for me. But Auntie Christine, Mm -hmm. one thing I never did ask you as we were talking about divestment, was there a specific moment that led you to that epiphany Mm -hmm. where you're like, I'm divesting, man. What led you to do that? <laughs> so I would say it was, it, there was a long buildup, but then there was absolutely a decisive moment. And it happened in summer 2020. So, you know, already into the pandemic world. And I hadn't taken, I don't think I'd taken more than four days off since I started my tenure track job in 2013. Um, And as you know, also, I think kind of worrying about getting tenure, there's big expectations that come when you have a research chair, all of that stuff. And I think especially as if you are like I am, like a really young sounding vocal frying, uh, kind of, you know, casual dressing woman. So basically, I developed an inflammatory eye condition that is uh, autoimmune, it can be caused by stress, and it can make you go permanently blind if it's not treated. So for me, basically, my body said enough, and I was lucky enough to be able to have a bit of space to sit back and say, okay, I'm actually going to listen. I think these epiphanies are so hard won. And throughout academic Mm. aunties, we've had so many conversations with fellow aunties like yourself where Mm -hmm. we're just so used to the hustle and we're used to the grind and we're used to giving all of our energies into our job, especially since we wanted to fight back against the impression that we don't belong there, right? Like, and we also, you know, we want to change things. I mean, there's like equity considerations there at play, but then when your body Mm -hmm. tells you to Mm -hmm. stop, then you have to stop. Yeah. And that pause in some ways is important. Yep. Absolutely. Do you have any advice to give faculty members, students heading back? Are you going to keep encouraging people to divest, to quit quietly (laughs) What should our mantra be in the year ahead? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. So I would say, yes, I would advise all faculty members to think seriously about, about, yeah, divestment as a potential strategy that might improve your mental and physical health. But I would also say I had a conversation about exactly this, about the idea of divesting with my friend and colleague, Funke Aladjebi, who teaches in history at the University of Toronto. And she suggested a new, an additional twist on this way of thinking that I also loved. And what she said that she had done the previous year is that as you are divesting from the things that are, you know, costing you in all different ways, what will that allow you to say yes to? And so basically Mm. framing your nose and your withdrawing energy from different commitments, framing it in terms of a yes to something that you want to prioritize, something that you want to achieve, something that you think is important, whether it's in your career or your life or both somehow. So I'm trying to think of what I'm saying yes to this year. I think this is really good advice from Auntie Christine. 
In fact, I even made a mug with the word divest on it in big block letters so I remember her words. If there's a silver lining to COVID, maybe it's that it clarified what is and isn't important in our lives, professionally and personally. This was a hard one lesson for me. At the height of COVID, while dealing with so many family and community COVID deaths, I also had to withstand workplace toxicity. I went into a dark place. Then I realized, wait, isn't it messed up that work is adding to my stress while I am also grieving? Why am I dismissing my health, my needs? And so I realized that I cannot let the institution define me. To last in this work, I should only do projects that I find meaningful with people who I find meaningful. It took COVID to make me understand the value of taking back our time, of quiet quitting, of prioritizing what matters. And I truly hope that I don't forget these lessons. I hope, listeners, that you don't forget these COVID-related epiphanies too. I want to thank Auntie Jen and Auntie Christine for joining us this week on Academic Aunties. If you want to hear more from them, you can follow Auntie Jen on Twitter at at JHMustafa, that's Mustafa with a PH, and you can follow Christine at at Christine Alexand. Check out the show notes for links to their socials. And that's Academic Aunties. Follow us on Twitter at, at academicauntie and visit academicaunties.com slash support to learn about all the ways you can support the podcast. That includes becoming a Patreon supporter, which goes right into the production of this podcast. This week, a big shout out to one of our newest patrons, Shanti Fernando. Thank you so, so, so much for your support. Today's episode of Academic Aunties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Nisha Nath. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.